uh, with your copy of God's Word in Zechariah, Zechariah chapter number 12. I've enjoyed watching the baptisms and seeing these men follow the Lord in uh, believer's baptism and uh, knowing their story and knowing their journey. Uh, it's been a blessing there and we've already had a jam-filled morning with a great crowd in our early service and uh, early groups starting very early in the morning. We have group time at 8 o'clock, 9 uh, and 10.30. So we have three times that you can attend a small group and be a part of a, an intentional group, a class that, uh, that uh, we have here to teach you God's Word. If you're visiting with us today, this is the norm. Uh, we always shove and squeeze into a spot. And uh, we, um, we're currently building a parking lot. We're, we're going, through the, uh, going through the hoops and hurdles of the county and the, the city and all the things that they're making us do. And we have a lot of projects going on right now, so pray for us. But we do have a plan. And so uh, if you'll squeeze in for a while and just make this your, uh, your uh, you know, place of worship and uh, where, we, where we learn much about the Bible and we love a lot of people. I promise you, you can put up with a lot if you love your church and love the Lord. And uh, so we, we don't mind squeezing in. That's been the journey of our church for quite some time. We've always been squeezing in somewhere. And so we're very thankful for what the Lord has done. After eight visions, I've been preaching through the, the book of Zechariah. And you, pre- you really picked a great day to attend if you're just joining us. I know when you say Zechariah, many people... Uh, sometimes have zero um, knowledge of Zechariah. They they know it maybe is toward the end of the Old Testament. They know it's possibly a minor prophet, and uh, but they they don't have a whole lot of um, knowledge about it. And the reason is sometimes when you read through Zechariah, you you just you hear about these visions, you hear about these revelations, you hear about all this stuff. You don't really know what's talking about. And so we tackled the book of Zechariah months and months and months ago, going verse by verse. Uh, and now we find ourselves in chapter 12. I, I, I hope you've been following along in your, in your journey with me. But we have found ourselves in a very, very important time in the eschaton. The time would be the battle of Armageddon, which would be at the very end of the tribulation period, which is a seven-year seven year span, three and a half of good and three and a half, or let's say three and a half of peaceful times, not good, but peaceful times, and then three and a half of, of uh, just torment and judgment, and uh, literally hell comes to earth uh, in that, that opening of that seal and all those things that are going on. So after eight visions, which is found in chapters 1 through 6, and, and after the revelations in, in verses 7 through 8, the book winds down with major prophecies. And there's really two prophecies. You're going to have to, I'm going to lay some groundwork, but then we're going to get to some verses. And, and really, so, so just stay with me, if you will. Uh, we're, we're getting to two prophecies. Two prophecies really being the, the first, uh, I guess you could say, seven, eight, and nine chapters uh, they are dealing with the first coming of the Lord. And even in chapters 10 and 11, we're talking about the rejection. Remember, Jesus came into His own. His own received Him not. Remember, He, he came and the Jews crucified Him. Remember when they had to choose between Barabbas and Jesus and they, they said, uh, uh, free Barabbas and crucify Christ. And they were yelling it in the streets of Jerusalem. And even Pilate didn't understand it. He, he knew he was an innocent man, but yet the Jews crucified the Savior. So they rejected Him. 
Last week I was preaching in Zechariah 11, and remember over there in the middle part of the chapter it says, and, and they sold him for 30 pieces of silver. Now we're talking about Zechariah 11. Well, we, we know over in, in the Gospels that Judas betrayed Jesus and sold him out to the priest in the temple for 30 pieces of silver. That's also the same amount of money that you would find a, a slave being sold for in Exodus chapter 21. 30 pieces of silver. But that slave was not healthy. That slave had actually been trampled and gored by an ox. It was worthless. So 30 pieces of silver, nothing. I mean, there was no value. And you remember last week we preached that we must add value to the Savior. Well, today we come to Zechariah chapter 12. We're talking about the second coming of the Savior. I want you to notice some things. We're going to begin in verse number 1. The Bible says this in Zechariah 12, 1. The burden of the word of the Lord for Israel, saith the Lord, which stretcheth forth the heavens and layeth the foundation of the earth and formeth the spirit of man within him. Now, I want you to remember these verses are speaking of, especially this first verse is describing our great God. He is the creator. If we were to go back all the way to Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, we would see our great God as a creator. It describes it in three ways. He stretches forth the heavens. He layeth the foundation of the earth, and he formeth the spirit of man within him. Literally, God, he spoke into existence the heavens. He created in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. And then the Lord formed man. He created man in his image, and he breathed into man through the nostrils of man the breath of God. And man began to breathe, and man began to be a, a living and breathing Organism and a life came in because of God. And so we see that God is the creator. He is the sustainer. We find that in verse number one. He's also declaring himself the protector of Israel. And what is in Israel? Well, there's a city in Israel that is Jerusalem. Matter of fact, in the last three chapters of Zechariah, Jerusalem is mentioned 22 times. In the whole book of Zechariah, Jerusalem in itself, the city, is mentioned 52 times. And so God is, is saying that, and we see that in verse number 2, God is saying that he is going to be the protector of Israel, but primarily Jerusalem. And we find that in the text. I want you to notice verse number 2. He says, Behold, I will make uh, Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the people round about when they shall be in the siege both against Judah and against Jerusalem. So we see that God is going to be the protector. We're, I, I've, I've got a slide up here. If you'd put that slide that, that uh, shows the siege at the Battle of Armageddon, it's going to show you uh, somewhat what that looks like. If you look at the screen, uh, we see Babylon to the far right. We see Jerusalem and Israel to the far left. And we see that these nations through demonic power, they, these kings, we find that in Revelation chapter 19, these kings are influenced by Satan. And they come on Jerusalem and they literally surround Jerusalem 
from the north and the, and the east and the south. And then there's a battle that rages. And I've got some stages listed there. The assembling of the allies of Antichrist, the destruction of Babylon, the fall of Jerusalem. All of these are during the time of the tribulation period. But then they formed at the very end, they form in the valley of Megiddo. They form in what we call the Battle of Armageddon. We, we hear that term, the Battle of Armageddon. We, uh, anytime you, in history, we, uh, we hear of a, a tragic event or a big time, uh, catastrophic event, sometimes they'll say that's Armageddon. But that's not really true because Armageddon actually is going to exist. It's in the valley of Megiddo and it's going to be when all the armies of the Antichrist form in this valley and they are going to rise up against Jerusalem. Now we know that Jesus, the Messiah, he is going to defeat the Antichrist. He's going to defeat him with the word of his mouth. We're going to talk about that in just a little bit. But they are rising up as a siege. Look with me in verse 2. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling. And it's going to be a, a trembling unto all people round about when they shall be in the siege both against Judah and against Jerusalem. I want you to notice the smiter of the foe, the foe being the Antichrist, the foe being the armies of the Antichrist. These verses are speaking of the siege that happens. Look at verse number 3. And in that day will I make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people. All that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces through all the people of the earth be gathered against it. Look at verse 4. And in that day, saith the Lord, I will smite every horse with astonishment. So there's going to be a cup of wrath. There's going to be a burdensome stone, which is going to crush the enemy. There's going to be confusion among the horses or the vehicles of the enemy. Because he says it in verse 4, I will smite every horse with astonishment. Or I will smite every horse of the enemy with confusion. Who's going to do this? God is going to do this. Because God, according to verse number 1, is going before them. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. He's the one that's going to fight the battle for Jerusalem and Israel in the day of the battle of Armageddon. We, we see all of this taking place. Now I want you to know verses 5 through 9. We see not only the smiter of the foe, but we see the strengthener of Judah. Look with me in verse number 5. The Bible says, And the governors of Judah uh, shall say in their heart, that means they're, they're going to know in their heart, the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall be my strength in the Lord of hosts, their God. So here's what's going to happen. According to verse number 5, all of the governors of Judah, the leaders in Israel, are going to know that all of these things has happened because of the Lord of hosts. What does the Lord of hosts mean? The Lord of hosts means the Lord of Sabaoth, which means the heavenly armies. God is the leader of the heavenly armies, and he is the one that is going to be attacking the foe of Israel. 
And the leaders of Israel are not going to be relying on the Iron Dome. They're not going to be relying on allies. They're not going to be relying on missiles and tanks. They're simply going to be relying on the help of the Lord of hosts. Hey, I love the study on the Lord of hosts because He is a God that goes before us. He's a God that fights our battles. He's a God that leads the heavenly armies. And by the way, our God is more powerful than any Antichrist. Our God is more powerful than any foe of Israel. Our God is more powerful than Satan. Our God is more powerful than any demon. And so we, as Christians, can put our confidence in the Lord of hosts. Amen. And we see that according to verse number 5. Their God. Now I want you to notice in verse number 6, In that day I will make the governor of Judah like a hearth of fire. You see that? That hearth of fire means a fire pan. And that fire pan contains wood. Notice in verse 6. Among the wood. And like a torch of fire in a sheaf or a, a grain. So think about this. God is describing, Zechariah is describing through God what God is going to do to the enemies. And he says, literally, the enemies are going to be like a big stack of wood in a fire pan or a, or a, a uh, let's just call it a fireplace. And, and it's going to be like a big old stack of dry, good wood inside of a fireplace. And we throw a match on it. And at, you know how fast good dry wood burns up. I mean, it's consumed just like that. Before you know, you got to throw some more wood on the fire because it just crackles and pops and it really goes away. But then in verse number 6, it says, or like a torch of fire in the sheath or grain. So you can imagine taking a torch to some dry grain or some wheat or something that's very dry. It would just burn right up. Now notice what verse 6 says. And they shall devour all the people around about, on the right hand and on the left, and Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place, even in Jerusalem. Now, two, two times in that verse, it says, even in Jerusalem. Who's they? The armies of God. God, the Lord of hosts, is going to bring His heavenly armies down and they're going to devour the foes of Israel. All the people that surround Jerusalem are going to be burned up just like a piece of wood or like grain that is very dry. They're going to be burned up. But I want you to notice the last part of verse 6. It says, even in Jerusalem. It says actually Jerusalem twice in that verse. Now let me just warn you of something. There is a theology out here that teaches, it's called replacement theology, that teaches that you can replace Israel with the church. And let me tell you something, that is false. When you start believing that the church has replaced Israel, you start reading your Bible and you are as confused you're as confused as a termite in a yo-yo. I'm going to tell you right now. I mean, you are just messed up and you are uh, just worried about this and that and you're misinterpreting and misapplying. And let me tell you, I believe according to verse number 6, all of this is going to be taking place in Jerusalem, the literal city of God as we know it. These promises are for Israel, the nation. This is not promises for the church. You can't take the church and put it inside a promise for Israel. Read your Bible and know this is a great promise for the nation of Israel. And so look at verse number 7. The Bible says, The Lord also shall save the tents of Judah first. Well, what does that mean? 
Well, it means that, that uh, he's going to rescue. Church, stay with me because we're, we're getting somewhere. That means that the Lord is actually going to rescue the outer skirts of Jerusalem, the rural communities that are very vulnerable. God is actually going to defend them first. He's going to fight for them because they have no walls. They have no army. They have nothing. And he's going to defend them first, is what the Bible says in verse 7. That the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem do not magnify themselves against Judah. Look at verse 8. And in that day shall the Lord defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And he that is feeble, which means weak, notice what it says. He that is weak among them at that day shall be as David. Now notice this. So God fights the battle for Israel on the outskirts. He defends the weak, the Bible says, the feeble. And he describes what the weak will be in that day. You know what the weak will be? The feeble. They will be like David. King David. Now, church, don't miss this. David is the greatest warrior that Israel ever had. David is a man, listen to me, he defeated a Goliath with a slingshot and one stone. He's the one that on a, on a day, even before Goliath ever existed, as far as uh, we know it in the Bible, uh, David was tending the sheep when he was just a boy or a teenage uh, young man, and a lion came out on the sheep, and David, with his bare hands, defeated a lion through the power of God and uh, defeated a bear. We're talking about the greatest warrior that has ever existed in Israel was David, and here's what God said. God says, I'm going to defeat the armies, and those of you that are weak, you're going to look like David when I'm through. You know what that tells me? That even in our weakest times, we're made strong through the strength of Almighty God, through the power of Almighty God. Jesus is our strength. Notice what else it says. Oh, I love this. In verse number 8, it says, And the house of David shall be as God, comma, as the angel of the Lord, this is the angel of Jehovah. What does the angel of Jehovah do? It goes before them. Do you see that? The angel of the Lord is before them. The angel of God fights their battles in front. Amen? He fights the battle. So the Lord of hosts, the angel of Jehovah, when we're weak, then we are strong because his strength is made perfect in weakness. Now, I want you to know verse 9, the Bible says, and it shall come to pass in that day. I think that's the fourth or fifth time we've read that phrase, in that day, referring to the end of the tribulation period. In that day, it shall come to pass that I will seek to destroy. Now, notice that word seek. This is God. I will seek to destroy all the nations that come up against it, Jerusalem. Understand, God is not seeking out a way to destroy them. God is seeking them out to hunt and destroy them. He is actually being intentional. He said, I'm going to give all of my attention in that day to seeking out all the enemies of Jerusalem, and I'm going to destroy them. Now, let me tell you, we just described to you this battle. We just described to you, now I know Revelation 19, Revelation 16, these chapters describe to you some, some uh, uh, more detail. This is going to be a very bloody battle. 
Matter of fact, you say, Pastor, how bloody is it going to be? Turn with me to one chapter over, Zechariah 13. Just one chapter over. Look with me in verse number 8. And it shall come to pass that in all the land saith the Lord two parts. Now this is two parts of this battle. Two parts of the land. Notice what happens to it. Two parts therein shall be cut off and what? Die. But the third shall be left therein. So, in Revelation it talks about how bloody this battle is going to be. The Bible even describes it as the blood will be up to the horse's bridle. It's going to be so bloody. There's going to be literally millions of people die in this battle. Both in the enemy and some in Israel uh, will unfortunately be attacked and, and die, I believe. And, and so we see that this is going to be a very, very bad war. Israel was attacked just a few months ago on October the 7th. And we look at that attack and we say, man, that was terrible. I, I've read some of the journalists. They actually had a viewing uh, that they could watch the, the uh, body cam footage and all the things of the enemy. They actually went in and, and uh, videoed themselves killing children and, and, and killing women and shooting people. And, the, and the, the journalist, even some of the journalists on the most liberal news organizations said they have never seen nothing like it. They've never seen nothing more brutal and more hurt and more harm and more just torturous and wicked. They've never seen anything. One man described it. He said, I will never be the same after watching that footage. Thinking about the brutality, think about the wickedness that went on October the 7th when those men flew in over the walls and went over into other areas around Jerusalem and slaughtered thousands of people, or at least hundreds of people died that day. And it's just brutal. But understand this, Israel has never seen anything like this. Israel has never seen a battle like what's about to happen. And the Lord says, Israel, I'm going to defend you. I'm going to fight for you. I'm going to annihilate your enemies. Israel, I'm going to seek out and destroy your enemies. And by the way, he will be victorious. Now, right, at, right after this great victory, number nine, chapter uh, or verse nine is a great victory. But look what happens. Look at verse number 10. We see the sender, the sender of the Spirit. The Bible says, and I will pour upon the house of David. I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace. Do you see that? And of supplications. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one that mourneth for his only son. And they shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his first born. In verse number 10, I see a beautiful picture. I see a picture of the repentance of Israel. As soon as the victory happens, as soon as the enemy is defeated, as soon as they are annihilated like a fire or like a burdensome stone crushed like powder, you would think that Israel would jump up for joy and they would say, yes, we are victorious Yes, we have defeated the armies of the Antichrist. Yay! But here's what they do. According to verse 10, they mourn. You say, Pastor, why are they mourning? Because they're repenting. Or why are they repenting? 
Well, it's because they have seen the one they have pierced. I want you to notice that. They have seen the one they have pierced, but here's what happens. The Bible says in verse 10, he says, I will pour out my spirit, the spirit of grace. What is the spirit of grace? It's the spirit of God. The spirit of grace in that text is the spirit of God. Well, when was the spirit poured out on Jerusalem first? Was it not the day of Pentecost? Was it not the day of Pentecost when the spirit of God blew in to Jerusalem and and 3,000 souls were saved and 3,000 souls were baptized and, and added to the church that day and really the church caught a flame and the spirit of God poured upon Jerusalem? Here's the second time. This is the outpouring of the Spirit of God. And as soon as the outpouring of the Spirit of God happens, they realize what they have done. The Bible says this, and I want you to look at it with me. The Bible says they, they, they look, so we see repentance, they mourn repentance. We see restoration in verse 10. They look at Christ. Now this is, I believe this is a beautiful picture of the convicting power, the convicting work of the Spirit of God. Because as soon as the Lord, the Spirit of God, convicts you of your sin, your need of a Savior, there's conviction that sets in. By the way, in order to be saved, there must be conviction. Right? Amen. You don't get saved through works. You you must realize that I need a Savior. You you don't get saved just because your buddy got saved. You don't get saved because your mama gets saved. You don't get saved just because it's the thing to do. You get saved because you're convicted by the Spirit of God. Amen. So there's the conviction that settles in in, in Israel. Notice what it says. They look upon the one in whom they have pierced. They shall mourn for him. So there's convicting work of the Spirit of God. There's the production of repentance. Because notice what else it says. As one that mourneth his only son and shall be bitterness for him and one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. So there's conviction. Here's what happens at conversion. We first get convicted and then we realize that we must repent. What does the word repent means? It means to turn from, a change of mind. So we're, we're changing our mind about our sin. We're broken about our sin. We're, there's contrition there. We realize we need a savior. We realize what we are and we realize what we have done. We have not believed in Christ. So there is repentance. This is happening in Israel. There's conviction. There's repentance. Then guess what else happens? Look with me in verse number 1 of, of, of Zechariah 13. In that day there shall be a fountain open to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and uncle- for uncleanness. This is a beautiful picture of salvation. There's conviction. There's repentance. And now there's cleansing. He opens up a fountain for cleansing of sin. Well, what happened at Calvary? There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Hey, I'm thankful for the blood of Christ. I'm thankful that that blood, that sinless blood flown down Calvary's cross. Hey, that same blood is what washes away all my sins. 
And I'm thankful for that. And we see a beautiful picture of the cleansing power of the blood of Christ found in verse 1. But then we see the result of a holy life or sanctification in verse 2 of of chapter 13. And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols out of the land and they shall no more be remembered. And I will cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to pass out of the land. This is sanctification. It's the holy life. As soon as the cleansing takes place, they're not the same. They're kicking idols out of the land. Them false prophets are no longer there. They're walking in a new life. They have a new life. Listen to me. Church, is this your life? Have you ever been convicted of your sin? Have you ever repented of your unbelief? Have you ever been cleansed by the blood of Christ? Have you ever walked in the power of of the Holy Spirit and the holy life sanctified and set apart for the Master's use? If you cannot say that this morning, then you are lost. You need to be regenerated. There's more Lou's out there. Lou, where you at? Right here. There's more Lou's out here who had a form of godliness but denied the power thereof. He had the conversion. I mean, he looked like it. Lou's a great guy. He acted like it. I mean, he came to church for a while. He went to our marriage retreat. He heard the preaching and the teaching. But guess what? Lou fell under conviction last Sunday. He messaged me on uh, the messenger thing and said, Hey, I raised my hand today. Like, it's your fault. (laughs) I raised my hand today and I was thinking to myself, Raise his hand for what? He was sitting over here. I didn't see his hand go up. But he raised his hand acknowledging that God was dealing with his heart. And we, you know, we're human. We, we don't see it. You got a room like this. We just don't see everything. And so he said, you know what? Instead of waiting until next Sunday, I'm dealing with it today. That's conviction. What happened? He met down in my office and I uh, took my Bible out and I explained the gospel to Lou. And Lou uh, prayed and asked Christ to save his heart and save his life and save his soul. And so guess what? Lou now uh, follows the Lord in believer's baptism. And now he wants to be a disciple of Jesus Christ and walk in the newness of life. That's what happens when you get saved. Some of you need to be saved. You say, Pastor, I think you're you're preaching to the church. I know, and the church needs to get saved. There needs to be more conversion. Don't just sit there. Some, I get people looking at me like calves looking at a new gate. I mean, they're just staring. What's he talking about? Oh, Cracker Barrel's about to get the Methodist in and the Presbyterians. and They're going to get the Lutherans are about to beat us over here at the coach house. We got to get there. What's he doing? Hey, listen, if that's what you're worried about. Listen, the Pentecostals are still going. They have church all day. I'll be honest with you. If I wasn't saved, I'd get saved today. Because if you've never experienced the new life that Christ brings, the forgiveness of sin, the cleansing power of the Spirit of God, if you've never experienced that, listen, this is literally going to happen in the nation of Israel. Israel will see the Christ, the one that they pierced. Isaiah 53 Isaiah 53 reads this way. Whom hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form of comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. 
He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid it as over our face, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and, our, and carried our sorrows, yet we did not esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, but he was wounded. That word wounded means pierced. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. We are healed because he was pierced. We were healed because he was crucified. Hey, my friend, listen to me. Israel denied him the first time, but they will see him for who he is the second time. May we see him for who he is now. May we not wait because my fear is if we wait, we'll perish. He said, I will pour. The Lord is the sender of the Spirit. The Lord is the creator of the universe. In John 16, he says, I'm going to send the comforter in John 16 and verse 3. But in John chapter 1, verse 3, the Bible says, uh, John was describing our great uh, Savior, and he calls him the creator. So he's both creator and he is both the sender. But I want you to see, and we'll be through verse 10. He says, and they will see whom they have pierced. They'll look on him. Who's going to look? Israel's going to look. They're not just going to glance. They're looking. Notice that word look in verse 10. It's not just a look to gaze upon and see the pierced. This is going to be a look. Church, don't miss this. A look of faith and trust. How must we come to Christ? We come to him by faith. For by grace are you saved through faith. Paul said in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace are you saved through faith and not of yourselves. is a gift of God. They're not just looking at him. There's a lot of people that look at the pierced Savior with intellect. They look at him with historical facts. They look at him through eyes of maybe doubt. But here's what Israel's going to look at. And we must in order to be saved. They will look at him through eyes of faith. We must come to Calvary by faith. We must come to Calvary by faith. Now these last four verses, notice this. In that day there should be a, a great mourning in Jerusalem as the morning of Hadadrimon in the valley of Megiddon. So that verse in verse 11, here's what the description is. Church, we're almost through. That description is, there was a king in Second Chronicles 35 by the name of Josiah. Josiah died in the battle against another king. And, and the great nation of Israel mourned Josiah's death. Guess where Josiah died in 2 Chronicles 35? He died in the valley of Megiddo. And, it, and they're describing this great mourning that Israel's going to be and they're going to have. They're describing that great mourning like Israel did in 2 Chronicles 35 for Josiah. This will be some of the most intense mourning you will ever see. It will be a private mourning. It will be a public mourning. It will be a national mourning. And they are mourning because they have pierced the Savior. That mourning, notice what it will affect. Look at verse 12. And the land shall mourn every family apart, the family of the house of David. Well, we know who that is. That's King David. And their wives apart. So he's talking about a kingship. And then the family of the house of Nathan. Some people say, well, that's the prophet, Nathan. No. Wrong prophet or wrong Nathan. That's actually David's son, Nathan, who also was a king. 
So we have a greater king, we have a lesser king. Both of them, will their houses that will be mourning. But then it says two other men. The family in verse 13 of the house of Levi. We know what Levi is. Levi is a priest. So the house of Levi or the Levites and their wives apart. But then in verse 13 it says in the family of Shimei. Well, people's like, well, I know who Shimei is. Shimei is the one that cursed David. No, it's the wrong Shimei. Shimei actually was listed in Numbers 13. He was also a priest. So here's what we have. We have mourning in the government and we have mourning in the spiritual. That means everybody. And verse 14 says, and all the family that remain, every family apart and their wives apart. So everybody that survived that battle will be mourning. Think about it. There's a bunch of them that died. But they will mourn. Can I ask you this question as we covered those 14 verses in a very fast way? Can I say this? Have you ever been to Calvary? Have you ever seen him for who he is, the pierced one? Have you ever looked through eyes of faith? Have you ever looked and and, and repented of your sin, the sin of unbelief, and, and you turned to Christ for salvation, and he's been cleansed through the blood, and you're walking in the newness of life? If you have never been truly saved, what are you waiting for? Quit playing games with God. I don't care about your accolades. I don't care about how long you've been in church. I don't care who your dad and mom is. I don't care about these things. What we care about is, is your soul saved? And if it's not, turn to Christ before it's too late. One day we'll be raptured. One day the church will be raptured. I don't know when that is. No one does. But one day we'll be raptured. Thus we'll begin the Thus will begin the Antichrist coming on the scene and the tribulation period and all the things. And whatever you believe about the eschaton is, is fine. It's, it's all, you know, we, can, there's, we can't be dogmatic about certain things. I understand that, but I do know this. That once we are, the Son of God comes to the clouds and Gabriel blows his trumpet, it will be too late for many. It'll be too late. And here's what's going to happen is... is I believe that those that hear messages like this, you will not forget them. You will not forget them. You're going to remember that preacher, that crazy preacher, got up and he preached a message about how we should look to Christ and how we should believe in those nail-scarred hands. I believe we should look at the pierced one whom we've rejected time and time again. We ought to believe by faith, and you're going to remember that. I wouldn't go to hell for nobody. I'd swallow my pride today and say, I want to come to Christ. And if he'll take you the way you are, you take him the way he is, the Son of God.